Hello and welcome to the Feed Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Feed Strategy Senior Reporter Ann Roos. John Rich is the Executive Chairman of MHP, the largest poultry and feed company in Ukraine. I spoke with him on the eve of the one-month mark of Russia's invasion of Ukraine about a range of topics, including how his company has continued operating inside Ukraine and the challenges it faces, the situation on the ground in the country, and how people outside Ukraine can help with the humanitarian crisis there. MHP is based in Kyiv, but Rich spoke to me from the Balkans headquarters of its subsidiary in Slovenia, where MHP's financial team has been based since the start of the war. Although men between the ages of 18 and 60 cannot leave the country, the whole team was able to move because it is made up entirely of women. I started our conversation by asking him what he's hearing from MHP employees who are on the ground in Ukraine. I think that the key message is that all our senior management, including uh, Yuri Kashuk, chief executive officer and major shareholder, they're actively uh, working around the clock, day in, day out, coping with a war situation. I mean, these guys never uh, never sleep. It's just, and our employees have been amazing with uh, to to be able to support us. Uh, in, in producing <coughs> poultry, and we're at the beginning of the war, we were producing around a, right at the beginning. Um, we were at maximum capacity, of course, and we were producing around about two thousand two hundred tons a day uh, at that particular time. What happened over the first two weeks was that our exports stopped, of course, because the blockade by Russian naval forces of the Black Sea ports. So all exports of our grains and all exports of our uh, poultry ceased. Uh, exports across the border into the EU uh, slowed down, then, then stopped completely, as you know. So in the first two weeks, we had to transition the business uh, from, I suppose, first of all, there was a psychological thing uh, in, when you enter war. Everybody, including Europe, the whole planet, was uh, except for very good intelligence by our military services. Um, I'm speaking about the Western military uh, organisations. They could see that there was a war coming. But uh, generally, people are in in these sorts of things. These situations are in denial. So we had to, when the war started, we had to transition the company pretty quickly from denial into acceptance. Because unless you're in acceptance, you can't operate properly. So that was the first challenge on the psychology side. But luckily due to COVID, uh, we, the, the communications systems between individuals working at home, different locations, etc., were, were all very well established, which allowed the company to, to mobilise its, its people to a, uh, into different areas and where they were basically needed to conduct uh, operations. And I think that in MHP's case, there are two big sides to this story. Firstly, of course, we went from being uh, exporter responsible for probably five to six percent of total global exports of poultry, and it switched into pretty much over the period of a few weeks into a hundred percent of the production of Ukraine. And the reason for that is that all the eastern parts of Ukraine were affected by war far more than we, we are, which is in the West. We're not relatively unaffected. So this <clears throat> meant that a lot of uh, poultry people that were operating, they ran into logistical problems. They couldn't get feed. They couldn't get... Um, there was road infrastructure that was destroyed. 
people in the Far East was a disaster. It was a direct invasion. So what's happened is that, and, and the big pork producers in the east, uh, from the Poltava region back towards the east, were ceased operating, and so consequently the food supply chain failed. So MHP had to take up the gap. So 100% of our production capacity was focused towards the uh, towards Ukraine for food security reasons. We couldn't export, so <clears throat> that was relatively easy to switch. Um, mind you, of course, that in these sorts of situations, you tend to produce more bulk poultry. It's not packaged because you don't have access to packaging materials and all the things that you've got to do in a poultry business when you go into what I call a war-type situation. What happened there was that the poultry uh, was... Uh, as soon as there was carpet bombing and, and, and the what I call 19th century technology applied to the 21st century uh, on cities in Ukraine, we had enormous refugee crisis and enormous uh, number of women and children uh, had to be moved, particularly hospitals and schools were bombed, as you know. You know the story of what's been depicted in the press is accurate. And, and so... And then, technically, today, we have probably up to 30% of our total population of Ukraine is displaced. And around about 3.5 million women and children have left. And so the whole company has changed into a humanitarian-type company. Right now, we, we give away pro bono up to 400 tonnes of our production per day uh, just to stop people starving. And the biggest... but So there's production but it's the distribution is the key. You can produce something, but if you can't distribute it, you're in, you, you know, it's useless. Luckily, MHP being 50% of the domestic market uh, of Ukraine before the war had the distribution capabilities because we own the largest cold chain distribution operations in Ukraine. We're able to mobilise that towards distributing food to all destinations, including the outskirts of these bombed-out cities such as Sumy, uh, Kharkiv. Mariupol, I might add, is a complete disaster, but you know you see that every day from, from the popular press. But it's what we've been able to do is to distribute a lot of our ready-to-eat type products, value-added further process type products. We've switched production into these dramatically so that people, can, when they get these products in the outskirts of these bombed-out cities, then they can eat them immediately. Do you understand? They're starving. So this, this whole situation is, is just a, a, a changing, to put a blunt, it changing a business model into a, uh, from where we were to a humanitarian aid-type situation from within a country is, uh, uh, right. we'll write the textbooks about it later for sure. But it's, uh, it's been an enormous challenge. But if it wasn't for the patriotism of, of Ukrainian people, volunteers, the assistance of the Red Cross, uh, this could not have been done. I mean, it's about the will of the people. This is something that really has come through. It's not only the fighting side of, the, of you know, every mile between 18 through to 60 is, is effectively in the defence forces. It's not about that. It's about everybody else that's not in that line of fire, are doing their bit to, to, to fight a war. And, and when it comes to food security, we originally had a deficit of drivers because driving 
these trucks into these areas is, is a logistical nightmare because we have 20 or 30,000 people on the ground with mobile phones and through this sort of network, we've been able to pick which roads are working, which roads are, which bridges are bombed, which aren't, whether there's military forces in one area versus another area. And all this has been critical in allowing us to distribute uh, poultry products through to these red zones, we call them. Uh, but then getting them through the red zone, we can't do in most cases. The Red Cross has been able to get some product through in certain areas in eastern Ukraine, obviously the high conflict areas where there's, you know, such as Mariupol, uh, where, where the Russian forces are starving the, the uh, population out. Well, not much we can do except feed the people that are, are escaping outside of that area uh, and feeding them as they, as they uh, get out of that area. But really, it's been huge, huge change. Aside from its poultry operations, MHP also has crop and grain operations. Rich said the company produces 2.5 million to 3 million tons of grain per year. Ukraine is a significant producer and exporter of grains, especially wheat, corn, and barley, as well as sunflower oil. According to the Ministry of Agrarian Policy and Food of Ukraine, the country exported 23.1 million tons of corn and 16.6 million tons of wheat in the 2021-22 to marketing year. Together, Ukraine and Russia export approximately 29% of the world's wheat exports and account for 90% of the world's corn exports. So will Ukraine be able to continue producing crops amid this conflict? If you remember, Ukraine produced around about 80 million tonnes of grain last year, but normalised, it's about 60 to 65 million tonnes. So last year was an exceptional year, but it's all in storage. As you know, we didn't get the opportunity to export it all. And so consequently, of course, a lot of those storages are in port areas and they're slowly but surely been destroyed. So, you know, you've got this issue. First of all, storage of the grains that we did produced last year being locked up in the country and some of them are some slowly but surely being destroyed. The second issue, I suppose, you know, for the company is is uh, that not only our storage is full, but then we've got to produce a crop and we have to produce a crop. And there's two reasons for that. Uh, first of all is what I call general food security of Ukraine. We have to do that. And we have a moral obligation to do that not only for Ukraine, but also a moral obligation to, to do this for, for food security globally, particularly big companies like us. Why? Because, look, MHP is one of the biggest agribusinesses in, in Europe. It uh, produced, just in Ukraine alone, you know, over 800,000 tonnes of poultry. Um, we produced between 2.5 to 3 million tonnes of grain a year. Uh, we, we produced between 200 to 250,000 through to 400,000 tonnes of sunflower oil. So, you know, and as you know, this area of Ukraine and southern Russia, of course, the, the so-called breadbasket produces 25 to 27% of global wheat supplies. It produces 50% of all sunflower and sunflower byproducts such as oil globally and 20% of rapeseed products, 17% uh, of barley for Europe, those things are critical. And so you've got a food dimension here on one side uh, for, for wheat in particular for consumption in the Middle East, uh, North Africa, and also all the way to Indonesia. You've got that aspect. 
And then you've got the aspect which affects our industry as poultry people, and that is feed that was going from Ukraine, Black Sea, into Europe. Uh, and that was a natural no-brainer because of freight costs. So this is all stopped, as you know. And this is a, it's a clear and present danger, unfortunately, for all poultry producers in Europe and the United Kingdom. So I suppose here's the, the, the quick and dirty for the, for the poultry industry for, uh, and all my colleagues that have, I might add, have been incredibly, incredibly supportive in Europe and the United Kingdom. You know, it's, it's, it's funny how a war draws people together. And it certainly has in the poultry industry uh, in this particular case. But the message is fairly clear. A lot of the estimates that are being produced by a lot of, you know, very senior analysts, I might add, seem to predict that, that, that Ukraine is still going to be able to produce a relatively large amount of grain this season. The fact is this, um, from somebody that knows what's happening on the ground, the eastern areas and the southern areas of Ukraine are generally higher um, wheat producers. And so that country was used, is used for winter wheat and often because of climatic issues, spring wheat. Um, those areas are out of commission, frankly. It's the Russian occupied areas. It's in some cases, the Russian forces have destroyed all the equipment, all the infrastructure. It's been a scorched earth policy. When we move through to the central areas and the western areas, um, we don't have occupied forces there at present. So that means that the land integrity is okay. In the MHP's case, as you know, we farm, our total land holding is about 380,000, 360,000 is generally in operation. This year, we'll be able to plant a probably around about 340,000 approximately. In other words, we've lost you know, maybe 10, uh, 15,000 hectares uh, in, in that order, which have which are under Russian, Russian occupation. Um, in that case, uh, we're pretty we're in pretty much good shape. The company always has, because it's been a very successful company and it's always had enormous liquidity, it, it had already purchased all its fertiliser requirements, all its crop protection products, or 90% of it, close to we had all our diesel, we've got everything in place to, to sow and plant. So with the winter crops, we are tilling now. And so that's business as usual for all our uh, unoccupied lands, which is, as I said, 90%. And when we're looking at um, spring crops, we will be sowing within the next two weeks. Uh, so we are sowing to plan in, in the western and central areas of Ukraine. So we are an outlier, frankly. Some companies, which particularly in the Poltava region uh, and, and towards the east, they have 80% of their lands occupied. It's a totally different story. So the bigger people generally are all committed to planting uh, at present, and they have the resources to be able to do it. But the 80-20 rule is that the it's the small farmers, which is from 500 hectares to 20,000 hectares that form the bulk of the production of Ukraine. And those farmers in relatively protected or unaffected areas by the war, they have serious issues. Firstly, they have an issue of the 
simple unavailability of fertilizers, red nitrogen or phosphates, they're just simply not available. They have the unavailability of fuel, crop protection products, all these sorts of things they don't have. Right? So with the spring crop that's coming through, they can probably till it, but then fertilizing it and doing everything else at present is out of the reach of these smaller farmers. And not even that, if they could buy fertilizer, they don't longer have working capital lines from operating banks to be able to fund it. So even though the Ukrainian government is trying to solve this issue by providing some funds to these farmers, the availability is a huge problem. And therein lies what I see the key, uh, key assumption that everybody's making is they think these farmers are going to be able to grow and export. I agree with the Ukrainian agriculture minister this morning. I think this is going to be very, very challenging. So the markets at present are pricing the fact that they think that maybe Ukrainian grain production could be down, you know, 27, 30%. My estimation is that at present, if this war stays the same, in other words, no major movement by Russian forces, then this, even under these situations, that could be very challenging too. I think it'll be significantly lower than what most analysts are saying. So what does that mean? It's the law of supply and demand that drives, uh, you know, pricing on one side and the hedge funds and derivatives on the other. So where where the hedge funds have positioned themselves and where that that is at present, I don't know because I haven't been studying it. But but in, as far as supply is concerned, I think that it'll be challenging out of Ukraine and with sanctions on Russia, it depends upon the leakage around the sanctions. Right. So some countries don't have sanctions and they will be able to, to uh, acquire Russian wheat um, through, through the system. But then it depends upon additional sanctions that will be brought in by the Europeans and the United States government, which may make it impossible for even people that don't have sanctions to be able to, to receive wheat. So it's, it's highly volatile. It's a clear and present danger, and I just think that presently and uh, the, the grain supply situation is going to be very, very challenging for European and for United Kingdom producers. I mean, forget barley. Uh, I just don't see that happening. As you well know, global wheat supply stocks are low. Last year, where there was a shortfall of 8.8 .8 million tonnes, and prices went up 22% in 2021. The shortage, I believe, could be 10 times that and because of what's happening in our, in our area. And if that's the case, I don't know where prices are going to go. But it's going to be very dependent upon the El Nino-La Nina effects in the southern oceans. Now, as you know, Australia's just come out of massive floods. Uh, its grain, a lot of its grain that it produced at the end of last year, still be some areas, it's only just been harvested and, and very heavily affected by uh, by weather damage so there's which means it's not suitable for normal flour production it's feed wheat so you've got that issue in australia uh, canada so far so good but with uh, but then the flip side across into uh, into soy corn cycle in the americas you know el nino in in the americas is is developing as it's clearly clearly been shown in some of the rubber bank reports and if it continues like that, and it could because of the volcanic explosions in Tonga and the cooling of the Pacific waters, you know, we could have a challenging situation in the Americas. 
So, yeah, I'd, you know, for poultry producers, it's a nervous time as far as raw materials are concerned. We just hope that it stays in the status quo and we're allowed to grow our crops and, and then exporting them will be incredibly challenging. We have to, uh, I mean, all the ports are closed. So this, and just remember all the, all the grain and oil and everything went out through the ports. There's only 600,000 tonnes of rail capacity between Ukraine and Europe. So, you know, some grain exports can go out this towards Europe in, in this, uh, particularly oil uh, production. Once we get the gauges sorted out, I mean, we're running 19th century gauges between Ukraine and Europe. Unbelievable. Three different gauges. <laughs> it's just unbelievable for the 21st century. So, you know, logistics very difficult to get into Europe. Um, it's not an easy situation, I say, to, to resolve and manage. And that's if we assume the status quo, right? And I don't think the status quo will be maintained forever. I think that there will be one major attempt by Russian forces to try and take Ukraine. Uh, otherwise, it will be seen globally as a complete failure and that would have geopolitical issues running all the way through to the Kremlin. So I don't know how all this is going to end. But at present, we plan to plant as normal we plan to produce poultry as normal for, to satisfy the food security needs of the nation. If we had surplus that was possible to export, say, to the Middle East, we would try to do so. But there's so many ifs here as far as that's concerned. At present, it's impossible anyway because of export bans. And we're also, you know, the company has other challenges um, which are not dissimilar to what poultry companies in Europe have. It's about working capital. Now, in, uh, in our country, right, to plant, normally we would have short-term facilities available to, for us for working capital for cropping. But, of course, because of the war and martial law and, and the Ukrainian central bank uh, regulations, you know, we, we can't raise working capital from normal banking lines because of what we call conditions precedent of war. So that means we have to fund everything. Now, MHP had a very good liquidity position because we came off the back of an extremely good year last year. But we have to be careful about how we expend that money, the application of that money, because if you ran out of money, there is you don't have access to facilities. So we're extremely cautious about the application of funds. In that particular case, we've got to fund the complete uh, cropping program for the whole year internally, okay, which we can do. Uh, but it's, it means that, uh, you know, the normal business is normal is not normal. It's, uh, and the Ukrainian Central Bank has regulations where we have to repatriate money from outside of Ukraine into Ukraine. And then once it's in Ukraine, you can't get permission to send it out of Ukraine to pay interest to banks or bondholders. It's, it's a forced majeure situation. How much of your workforce have you lost to either those who have gone off to fight or who have had to leave? Yeah, around about um, approximately now, I think it's about 10, between 10 and 15% of our workforce uh, is, uh, is left to join the armed forces. It obviously changes day by day, but this is it. But but we've been able to, you know, 
you're much worse in a unique situation just because of demographics of Ukraine uh, and post-Perestroika uh, from basically originating from World War II. There are always more women than men. So all a lot of senior positions were held by women. In fact, our, our workforce was uh, orientated just slightly above, you know, 50, just slightly above 50% of women. What's happened is that when the men have gone, before the men have gone to war, the, a lot of women have been retrained to take the men's position. Then, so at, so at the beginning, we were anticipating problems. But what's happened is that with a lot of other businesses that are closed, other people have come to join the, our workforce. And so consequently, our labour uh, situation is good. We haven't had a problem. We're in relatively safe areas too, which makes it obviously much easier. The biggest issue we had originally was drivers. These drivers have got to go into very dangerous situations, right? Life-threatening day in, day out. We had a drop in the number of drivers, but a lot of those drivers went off to join the military. But what's happened is that with the there's been a redistribution of labour in Ukraine. So now we have we have now have no shortage of drivers because people have decided that their their uh, their duty in life is to drive these trucks with humanitarian aid and poultry across the country to to feed the people to feed their people. So now that's happened, which, which means that the situation, you know, three weeks ago, it was looking serious, um, is now balanced. So as long as we maintain the status quo, labour force is intact, all our production facilities are intact, um, the uh, distribution system is intact. The only thing that did suffer significant damage was rented, rented facilities. Uh, in this particular case, uh, the biggest cold store unit in Ukraine, which is north of Kiev, was a 100,000 tonne capacity. We rented space there. Well, it was destroyed. It was in two parts. And Russian missiles, were, were grad missiles, were fired into it and destroyed both the facilities completely uh, in an attempt to uh, destroy the food production uh, distribution chain and, and starve the population. And I might add it was pretty effective because most supermarkets were uh, used these facilities for distribution. They were destroyed. So this meant that the MHB had to take a major role now in assisting supermarkets that still are operating throughout the country, distribute food. Simple as that. So apart from rented facilities and loss of product associated with it, which we've published in our RNSs on the London Stock Exchange, I think that that we have some storage facilities, of course, in the southern areas, Odessa, et cetera, regions which are inaccessible due to logistics. Um, now that's not logistics, meaning you can't get in and out. It can be either due to a conflict zone, uh, which it generally is, which is either held by Ukrainians or a conflict zone that's held by Russians. But, you know, it's, uh, but apart from that, it, the operations are running um, relatively normal as I speak. In one of your recent updates on the London Stock Exchange, you said you had to shift your feed production to mostly corn diet due to the port closures and other logistics. Can you tell me some more about that and what's needed yeah, to make I, a switch I can, like that? Actually. In, in what actually happened is that at the beginning of this disaster, 
we we had we had to close all our oil plants. Right? So all our protein plants, which is which is sunflower, we use sunflower as you know as a protein source. We're one of the few in the world that do so, um, and we don't use soy and uh, for broiler production. But we but we do and we have a soy plant, but we use a bit of we use soy in the parent stock operations. So everything had to be turned off because we couldn't export oil. Okay, so no protein meal. That was the first week. Um, then the next issue was getting logistical challenges of trying to get source and get critical uh, vitamins, minerals, enzymes, all these sorts of things into Ukraine. That was a huge logistical challenge to be able to, to, to get our supply into, in, in situ. For this, the, your readers have been, uh, the, have been of enormous help. All the big international companies have assisted in ensuring that we have continuity of supply, and a large number of them have been providing it pro bono. In other words, that is their contribution, the poultry industry's contribution to helping us feed our people. That is laudable, no question, and a message to, to everybody that's helped in that regard. And there's not a single company that I don't think hasn't, uh, has not given us enormous support. Uh, it is an enormous thank you for, for, for being able to assist us as a company. A lot of these companies, you know, if it wasn't so long ago, a couple of years ago, we're all at war against each other. But at least this, this particular war has drawn Europe together and certainly has drawn the poultry industry together. And I think that my message to all those international companies and supporters is it is an enormous thank you because they have been instrumental in assisting MHP maintain the food supply chain within, within Ukraine because without that, logistically getting food into the country is extremely difficult and you would have mass starvation. And that is a reality. So as far as uh, that's concerned, what has happened since uh, this assistance we managed to be able to get a, a rail link operating between our soy oil operations uh, and Europe. This meant that we could reopen our soy plant, which we've done, and export the oil across the border. That's allowed us to get uh, soybean meal into the rations, right, which has then meant that our rations are much more balanced, or obviously now balanced properly. So, uh, so we went through a period of a couple of weeks with, without, we were just feeding corn and not much else. And of course, that's a disaster, as you know, nutritionally. So we, uh, but that, that is now no longer a problem. We can produce what we need within the country now, as long as these facilities remain operating. Um, in other words, they're not directly targeted or uh, the rail links, and as you know, there's a number of rail links between Ukraine and, and Western Europe. As long as they are not targeted by uh, Russian military forces, uh, then, then we will be able to continue to feed the birds properly. Are the supply chain disruptions affecting the availability of feed additives and other ingredients? 
It is, but we've managed. In other words, now we seem to have got on top of it, but that's all because of international help, frankly. I mean, international company help. They've been doing everything they can to channel everything via Poland in particular and Romania, and this has allowed us to be able to get our vitamins and our minerals and all these sorts of things into the country to feed, to feed the birds. So that has been uh, instrumental in us being able to operate within our country. What do companies like yours need right now to continue operating and feeding the people of Ukraine? Well, I mean, as you know, we've got the grain in situ, right? Because MHP tends to store its full year requirements. So grain's not the issue and we have protein meals. So we can't, I think that soon as, if it's possible to open our sunflower plants in the future, uh, through because of better logistics between Europe and Ukraine, that will be of a great assistance. So I think it's something that's that's it's all about logistics, right? It's just was not built for uh, for mass transit of goods from Ukraine across into Europe via rail instead of port. So that not much can help there except enormous amount of effort by all. You know, European institutions and, and also the Ukrainian government to be able to try and make that happen. Um, MHP's biggest issue, uh, I think, is that, which is uh, a little bit of light in the tunnel, is the fact that when you're giving away 15% or so of your total production pro bono, of course, that comes at a large cost. So originally, a few weeks ago, we, we were trying to work out ways of how you maintain the integrity of a food supply chain and distribution chain within the country, the biggest, right, for food security and humanitarian reasons. How do you maintain that when you have no help? Because people will donate, right? They won't donate directly to a Ukrainian company. It just doesn't work that way. They may donate to the Red Cross. But I think that what has helped in the last few days, we've come to an in-principle uh, collaborative agreement with the United Nations World Food Program. Now, these people are highly professional, highly recognised. They understand conflict zones. That's what they were formed for. Uh, they have resources in Poland. Uh, they have uh, some sort of infrastructure in, uh, in Ukraine. And so what we've decided to do is to work with the World Food Program we're going to provide our logistics to assist essential things coming into uh, Ukraine and distribute it. And they will also uh, assist MHP maintain the, uh, the integrity of the whole food chain in Ukraine. So it's support from within because supporting from outside is a very difficult issue. You can donate a, a can of baked beans, take it to the Polish border, but to get it to Kharkiv is not easy, not without MHP's distribution system, because it's the largest and one of the few that's left operating. This collaboration, I believe, will be instrumental in helping MHP uh, be able to do this. And of course, you know, this means that for the services that we provide, we at least we, we get paid for it. Do you understand? Because, I mean, you can't continue this forever. If it's a war of attrition for years, of course, you're not going to have the financial resources to be able to provide a country pro bono with its humanitarian aid. What do you want people outside of Ukraine to know about the situation there? 
There is one really important message, but it's to do with corporate governance, right? This is a situation without precedent um, since World War II. And it is the biggest war in Europe since World War II. And this, this, people all dance around the words, but it's a simple war of Europe. And it has the potential to, to spread from outside of Ukraine as well, but not today, you know, because I believe that the forces that are in place in Ukraine are battling to try and take Ukraine. So I don't think, you know, unless there were, there were other what I call unthinkable things happening as far as weaponry was concerned. Um, I think that, you know, the, the risks to other neighbouring countries today are probably relatively low due to, due to the inability of the Russian army to, to move there. But the problem I have in corporate governance-wise is that we're a listed London Stock Exchange company and there's a number of other listed companies, big people that are in our space in Ukraine. Now, all of us have the same problem, but MHP has a unique problem. The bigger companies that are listed have, uh, which are predominantly sunflower crushers in particular, and just export oil, they've just stopped and that's it. MHP just can't do that because it's got to feed the people. So it has a massive role in food security to prevent starvation in the country. And people are starving in, in no question in this country. And they are under enormous cold stress because they're still cold there and everybody's forgotten about the fifth horseman of the apocalypse. And that was pestilence, right, disease. COVID is still raging there and all our women and children have got it. So you've got this dimension. In our case, right, we, we have a number of corporate responsibilities, right, clearly set out. Our responsibilities, right, uh, we've always under, under the UK corporate governance laws to all stakeholders. That's a simple statement. We've got to treat all stakeholders equally. However, when you are dealing with uh, corporate governance issues in a time of war, this textbook's not been written, right? So when response, what does the word responsibility mean in war? when it comes to, to partners and to stakeholders. And my messaging this week to everybody globally across the planet is that the, the, the corporate governance has to, has got to be a little bit interpreted and reinvented a different way. And let me explain why. When we talk about stakeholders, most financial people think, okay, that's investors, bondholders, and banks, right? I think this is what they think. But now, thanks, thank you to recent changes in the, over the last decade, people now see employees as stakeholders, they see suppliers as stakeholders. You know, all the people that you touch, right, you have a responsibility uh, as stakeholders, as a stakeholder, right, which, is, which has been incorporated into the corporate governance law, which is good. It's good, right? And definitely in the West, and particularly in Europe and the United Kingdom, there's been very, very strong messaging by the authorities that this has to be, which I think is a, is a great thing. In the case of war, right, what does it mean for MHP as a listed company today when it comes to stakeholders? And here, you know that we've got 30,000 uh, people that work for MHP within Ukraine under duress, okay? Then what people forget is that 
lot of their families lived in those bombed out cities. You know, they might have worked in the Western area, but their families were in the East. So all these families that are refugees are then come to live with them. So all of a sudden, you might have had an employee with two to three people uh, in the family, and now they've got 10 they're supporting. So this is, but they're still stakeholders, it's their families. And so this is a war situation with refugees that nobody thought about. And then you've got suppliers of of, uh, MHP. And what does that mean? Well, it's not only materials and, you know, plastics and this and that. It's it's also um, farmers because farmers also supplied MHP, a large amount of, of, uh, of sunflower, as an example, and soy, because we're the big, one of the biggest crushers in the Ukraine. So these farmers, you know, our integrity, they're, st- they're our stakeholders as well. And then on top of that, MHP, as you know, land is leased in Ukraine. It's not purchased. So all and it came from the old cooperative uh, post-perestroika system. So we have 200,000 200, landholders that we pay lease fees to every quarter, which they rely on that money to survive in the villages. So then when you add up all our stakeholders, there's over a quarter of a million, a quarter of a million people. So in a war situation, right, you've supposed, you've got to support them, right? You have to, or they starve. So there's a humanitarian issue to this. A massive one. So then you get conflicts. I believe the biggest issue is that 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 we as a as a group, right, have to be together as partners, and this togetherness is critical because we're all equal. Some needs are greater than others. You know, starvation, children starving, these sorts of things. You know, are they more equal? Do you understand? This is the moral dilemma, I believe, of what, when we wrote corporate governance law, we never anticipated World War III in Europe. So for us, right, to me, we've got to treat everybody equally. No question, right? And this is sometimes hard to get across to finance institutions, okay, that might be sitting uh, in their lounge chairs in New York. You know, this is this is a, a concept that they can't imagine because they're not there to see it and experience it. So my thesis is this, that, that everybody must be in this team equally together. They must, right? It is our moral, our moral obligation. And, you know, I think that if we've got this, you've got to remember that unity for all of us is the strength. The best way for the country and our company to survive is through unity, right? Division as a weakness is a disaster. And then then the country and the company fails if, if there's disunity between all stakeholders. So, and at stake here is just a bigger, bigger picture. At stake today, what we're fighting for in Ukraine and what Europe is now fighting for is is, is our ability to maintain a democracy in Europe for the future. So it is, this is a big deal. It's about corporate governance, right? At the end of the day, the message has got to be everybody's got to be treated equally. No question that, that, that all people have to understand that our social responsibilities here to the people of Ukraine, right? And also collaterally to people that we export to outside of Ukraine, 
the, uh, such as uh, the MENA regions in relation to food security is critical. Right? So everybody's got to work together to solve this particular problem and support each other. That way, you guarantee the continuity of the state of the of the sovereign state of Ukraine and preserve the companies within it. If people want to help Ukraine with charitable donations, what groups should they give to? Red Cross, without question, is doing a very good job because it's direct things to people in need. Need, you know, particularly in the, on the medical front. You know, you've had hospitals and schools bombed out. I mean, it's just dreadful these atrocities. And the Red Cross is trying really hard to manage that. It's difficult. And they're doing a very good job in trying to get into zones that we can't get into, right? And we assist the Red Cross that way. We provide fuel where we can. We help fuel buses getting refugees back out again. All these sorts of things are often done with the Red Cross. With the World Food Programme, I think it's a much, at present, a much better and more centralised way to, to do to do this uh, because what the World Food Programme is trying to do is, it, sure, it's providing some food to the borders, but logistically getting into the country is difficult. So, and then distributing it is very difficult. So I think that the, the, the best way to help MHP in many ways is to support the World Food Programme system because they, they mandate, they have a mandate to be able to preserve the integri integrity of the Ukrainian existing food system for the future, okay? In other words, to preserve the ability of Ukraine to feed itself. That is critical, and I believe in that mandate. So my short answer is that, that, that by working with the World Food Programme, and they're extremely professional uh, people and been in business for a long, long time as a United Nations arm, probably is one of the best ways that, you, that MHP and the country can be supported at this time where we're using the concept of feeding from within and distributing from within. And if you would like to contribute to the World Food Programme, you can do so at wfp.org. You can donate to the Red Cross at redcross.org. I would like to extend a big thank you to John Rich, MHP's executive chairman, for speaking with me about the situation in Ukraine. And also thank you to the audience for listening. This is Ann Roos for Feed Strategy. 